Thank you very much, Grant. Good morning, everyone. Yeah, it's a real honor, privilege, pleasure to be able to be here this morning um, and to speak on this topic um, with you because while I'm going to be doing most of the speaking probably up front, um, we do want to give opportunity if there are any questions or any comments um, that you would like to make um, that might help to clarify some of the issues, we are going to be doing that as well. So I'm not going to be taking any more time um, in terms of um, telling you about myself. I think Grant has, has done a, a fair job of that. You know, so I sometimes have to listen very carefully when people introduce me to make sure that it is me they are talking about. Uh, in fact, about halfway through, I was beginning to have doubts, but, <laughs> but thank you very much for that. Um, yeah, so um, to, today we're going to be talking about a topic that has been one that has fascinated me for many years, as I'm sure it has done for many of you. Um, as we grow up in the church and as we see things happening around us, we often do ask the question, you know, so, so where are we within the grand scheme of things? You know, as far as the Bible is concerned, as far as biblical timelines is concerned, as far as the timelines within the world is concerned, you know, because, you know, we do believe that Christ is coming again. Um, and when certain things happen, um, especially when there are um, events that have got an impact um, upon the world, upon the world stage, and particularly in the Middle East, you know, as um, very naturally so, the current conflict um, has therefore asked, um, brought in people's minds, um, you know, so what does this now therefore mean, you know, the Middle East conflict as far as our understanding of the end times is concerned. Um, now, I want to say that this is one of those topics that I'm sure you will know can be a very, very divisive topic. Um, and part of the reason for that is, you know, that when we take a look and when we seek to understand these things, you know, people will often, based upon their study of the Word of God, um, and sometimes based upon who they read and who they listen to, they can draw to certain conclusions. And some of those conclusions, for some people, take them in different directions. You know, I often use the saying, you know, it's, it's like typically being a Baptist, you know. They say if you have three Baptists in the room, you'll end up with four opinions. Um, and sometimes that is what can happen even on a topic like this. You know, and so sometimes you will have some speakers who have become convinced of a particular perspective and a particular view, um, and when they come and do a presentation like this, they will give you their perspective and say, this is what I sincerely believe, this is what I absolutely believe, and they share that as um, not only their truth, but what they believe is the gospel truth. Um, I'm going to be taking a slightly different approach, even though I do specifically have got my own perspective and my own belief um, on this. Um, I believe part of my task is to educate people, and part of education is, as has been my approach when I was at seminary, is to expose people to different ways of thinking about thing, things, especially legitimate ways, legitimate alternatives in terms of thinking about things. Um, I mean, there, there are often opinions that are invalid opinions, you know, so when you're in the world of Christian theology, we are aware of views that are just way out, you know, we often call them liberal views, you know, um, and, my, and my task has never been, you know, to try and help people to, um, you know, 
delve into all the, the depths of those views, you know. But, you know, within our family, you know, of what we broadly call evangelical Christians, Bible-believing Christians, you know, who believe um, about the person of Christ and the necessity for salvation, etc., a lot of the things associated with that, um, you know, th- that's the family within which we fall. And even within this family, we will have different beliefs and different perspectives. And so um, part of what I want to seek to do today is to expose you to that, you know, and especially when we're dealing with this topic, it brings us into, you know, there's lots of jargon often, you know, when, we, when we're dealing with this. Some of it is helpful, some of it is confusing, but since some of those are used, you know, I think it is important that we address them and so that you are able to a- at least have a perspective, where does this all fit into it? So, so broadly speaking, the study around the end times um, brings us into the area of what in Christian theology is called eschatology. The word eschatology simply means the study of the last things, which involves a number of issues, you know, but um, part of the issue that eschatology, the study in eschatology, seeks to address is um, the end times, you know. So generally it's called the Christian study of the end times. Now, there are eschatologies in other religions as well, by the way, um, but, you know, we are then focusing on Christian, the topic of Christian eschatology, um, which... For now, we're going to be focusing on one aspect of eschatology, and that is the end times. You know, what are the circumstances around what we call the last days, the second coming of Christ, the last judgment, the millennium, etc., etc.? And this is a teaching that often focuses upon certain books of the Bible. So, you know, books like the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel and the book of Zechariah, you know, are often some of those books that will have language and will have prophecies and will have passages, you know, that seeks to cover to cover this topic. But there are also other passages in the Bible, you know, and I reference, for example, some of the, um, the most popular or the most important passages that people often refer to in the New Testament. You know, so a little section in the book of Matthew, in Mark, in Luke chapter 21, and then, you know, throughout the letters of the New Testament, there are often verses that crop up from time to time, that will refer to um, Christ in terms of His second coming, or what is called the Day of the Lord, um, etc. You know, so those tend to be some of the, the 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 most popular books and passages that we will that we will refer to. That's not the only ones. Um, you know, for example, even in the book of Isaiah, right at the end, you know, there's a part that kind of refers to um, what is understood as you know the end of times, um, when, the, when the day of the Lord does happen, um, etc. So, but yeah, th- those are the, are the most popular ones, in which out of that often emerges, you know, specific ideas, catchphrases, terms, you know, that you can almost kind of hashtag, you know, and, and, and not all of them is there, we could even add hashtag Armageddon, you know, and etc. Um, yeah, but you know, um, and that becomes the talk, you know, what do we believe about the second coming? What do we believe about the millennium, the final judgment, the rapture? Um, what do we believe even about the Antichrist? In fact, at, at our church, I'm a member at the Pinelands Baptist Church, um, we're going through the book of Daniel at the moment, you know, and in fact, just last Sunday, our pastor preached a message that was entitled, The Archetypes of the Antichrist, you know. And so obviously, you know, those are kinds of things that, that you know, um, kind of, for many Christians, you know, um, want to open up your ears and you want to know, you know, so, okay, who is the Antichrist going to be, you know? Um, is there anybody that can trump the current possible person, you know? But even anyway, um, 
Yeah, so, so, so when it comes to the, 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 the idea of the end times, one needs to recognize that there are actually different ways that evangelical Christians approach these Bible texts and books of the Bible that I've referred to, um, that based upon the way in which they believe that needs to be studied, will often bring them to a particular belief. Now, there are four main interpretive models um, that, that are often used, that people will use to understand those texts that will bring them to particular conclusions. And just very quickly, um, the first perspective that is called a preterist perspective or preterism is the belief that when one takes a look at those passages and those Bible verses and Bible references, Bible books that I've referred to earlier, that by and large the prophecies contained within those books are things that have already happened. So from where we stand, it might have been in the future of the people who spoke it and who referred to it, but those things have happened. Um, and there would probably be very little of those prophecies except for the second coming of Christ, obviously which hasn't happened, because if it has happened, we're in trouble, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. So, 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 that's, so that's one perspective. The second perspective is what is called an historicist approach, you know, in which they take a look at the Bible and those Bible books and Bible references, and they will say, well, all those biblical prophecies that particularly refers to the end times, the day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ, etc., can be connected with people and with events in the past, but as well as into the future. Not just their future, but our future as well. Um, leading up until the time of the second coming of Christ. You know, and some will tend to go into particular details. You know, will say, well, maybe, you know, in order to identify the Antichrist, you know, here's an historical figure, you know, that the Bible might be referring to that might still come into, um, happen in the future. So, so, so that's a second model. A third model is what is called a futurist approach. Um, it just kind of shifts the balance of what we find within what is what may be called an historicist approach to understanding the prophecies of the Bible. Um, and the futurist approach will say, well, most of the prophecies that we find within the Bible is about the end times that even from our perspective is still to happen. You know, so you can see it's just kind of a shift in terms of, you know, the weight of the number of prophecies that they are and the degree to which they are believed to have been fulfilled or might still need to be fulfilled. And then finally, um, what is often called an idealistic approach or an approach called idealism sees those books and especially those passages that refers to the end times or the end time prophecies as representing a symbolic future either positive or negative, you know, because some of those prophecies, while many of them are scary, you know, and therefore negative, also some beautiful ideas, you know, a new heaven, a new earth, you know, that, that for me is very positive, you know. Um, there's a hope and a very positive aspect that one has to acknowledge, you know, and, and not just all the, the doom and the gloom, as it were, um, when it comes to, 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 to end-time prophecies. So, so broadly speaking, you know, you could go into any evangelical church and you can pick up many different commentaries or perspectives on the end times within our evangelical family, and most of them will fall into one of these categories or sometimes even a combination of these interpretive approaches. Now, having said that, 
we now then focus our attention on very specific issues because a lot of um, focus upon the end times, upon the day of the Lord, um, often centers around particular concepts that emerges um, from within the study of eschatology, and one of that is the millennium. So based upon those four main interpretive approaches, there has emerged what I would want to call four main views even around the millennium. Um, some people say there are three, but the one, the first one um, that we consider, has kind of developed into, into two different streams. So the four main views in relation to the end times around the millennium can be described as the historic pre-millennial view. You know, now we're going to have our, um, our tongues um, caught in a bit of a twist, which means that I also have to drink a sip of water to be able to pronunciate all of these things. Yeah, so the position of historic premillennialism, dispensational premillennialism, amillennialism, or, or uh, as some people will pronounce it, amillennialism, and then postmillennialism. Now, there are, in many of these perspectives, you know, sometimes grand schemes and lots of details, you know, as to how they would go about interpreting these issues. I don't have the time to be able to go into some of the details and the nuances of that. I want to try and maybe sketch it broadly um, and maybe do it in the form of, of a picture um, that might help you to understand what are the different nuances within, within these millennial views. And so this is a picture that I've got off the internet, if you're able to see it um, over there, that tries schematically you know, in a diagram to try and help you to understand how generally the issues that relates to the end times um, fits or falls into place based upon the way in which they understand or seek to understand the various Bible passages that relates to that. So they kind of follow. So the first one, so maybe just to help you to understand the picture, on the left-hand side of here, you will see the symbol of the cross. And that represents what we call the first coming of Christ, the time when Jesus was born um, and when he died on the cross. You know, that is something that happened around about 2,000-odd years ago. Um, so after that, we then look forward towards what would be the end, you know, eternity. So what's going to happen um, when the end happens? So the first position um, that is called historical premillennialism, premillennialism, but sometimes also called post-tribulational premillennialism, basically says that, well, what is going to be happening that as we come close to the end, which is the second coming of Christ, leading up to the second coming of Christ, and a lot of this is based upon the book of Revelation um, in particular. Um, so you, we will have a tribulation period, you know, and there seems to be a reference as to how long that tribulation period is going to be, you know, depending upon how, reads it, or how one reads um, the description in the book of Revelation as well as in the book of Daniel, referred to that. Um, but there's going to be a period of tribulation um, that everyone is going to go through, but then there's going to be the second coming of Christ in which there's going to be a literal millennium, a thousand-year period in which Christ is going to reign and we're going to reign with him, and then there's going to be the last judgment. Um, you know, so, so that basically is what 
that one view says, you know, based upon the way in which it understands um, those prophecies. Then the more complicated scheme um, within that is what is called dispensational premillennialism, or sometimes therefore called pre-tribulational premillennialism. Now, why it's called that is because where they see the rapture actually taking place. So the scheme will work like this, um, and let me say this is probably at the moment one of the most popular or most well-known of um, the, the views on the millennium and as to what's going to be happening at the end times. So after the, the, the first coming of Christ, we look forward to the second coming of Christ, but, but basically Christ comes twice in this schema um, because this first of all, um, Christ appears or he comes in, in which then the church is raptured in order to avoid having to go through the tribulation. So the difference here is that instead of Christ coming after the tribulation, Christ comes before the tribulation and then the church and all those who have been saved will avoid the tribulation, they will go to heaven and they will return with Christ um, just at the end of the tribulation or what is sometimes called the great tribulation period um, and then the millennial will happen and then the last judgment. And so that's why it is called pre-tribulational dispensational premillennialism because the rapture is seen to take place before the tribulation whereas in that scheme over there um, we actually go through the tribulation. Then the third and the fourth positions is, you know, post-millennialism, which basically says, you know, we all go through it, um, and there's going to be tribulations throughout this entire period, not necessarily a very focused period, but then there is going to be a millennial period which in which many post-millennial people, and there, there aren't a lot of post-millennial people, even though it is, there's been a growing number of people who have adopted the scheme, they will then say, well, then the second coming of Christ and the last judgment happens at the end of the millennial period. That's what the word post means, after. And then finally, it is what we call the amillennial position, or the amillennial position, which says that, well, the millennium is actually symbolic symbolic of the entire period between the first and the second coming of Christ. So that inside the symbolic millennium, you know, all the things that we are experiencing or what people might interpret as the tribulation, those things will actually happen over here until when Jesus returns and there will be the final judgment. Um, now, especially given that we are looking at, you know, does the current crisis in the Middle East in any way fit into this, it often does, especially within the first two positions. You know, because within, while I've described the second one as a dispensational position, you know, dispensationalism over the years has developed many different streams and many different nuances. And they broadly fall within these two. So there are dispensationalists, people who hold to a dispensational scheme, of understanding the Bible and understanding Bible prophecy that will find themselves very comfortable over there, and there are others that will find themselves very comfortable over there. But it's, 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 it's generally those who find themselves in this position over here that sees happenings in the Middle East, especially in Israel, to be of particular significance and importance when it comes to trying to understand or discern the end times 
or, or it being one of the signs of the times that will indicate when the very end is going to be happening. Um, so I bracket those two as, broadly speaking, dispensational approaches, but it is in the second one that normally the idea of the importance of Israel is seen. You know, God's plan for the nation of Israel, where the conflicts that they face, and including the current one, is important for being able to try to interpret where, where are we exactly. You know, and so generally, the um, pre-tribulational, dispensational, premillennial view will say it is right at the very end of the tribulation period there is going to be, during the tribulation, not just a persecution of Christians, but also a very specific persecution of Israel, in which that is going to come to a head, but in which there's going to be a restoration of Israel, a salvation of Israel, um, and particularly using passages like Romans chapter 9 through to 11, that I'm going to talk about in the end, you know, becomes the, um, the important passages that seem to indicate that within the scheme. So the restoration of Israel is seen to be there. You know, and in fact, a lot of what you might be seeing in on popular Christian television shows, Christian media, um, and in some preachers will focus the attention there, you know, and will um, rally, as it were, call upon the Christian world to stand in solidarity with Israel um, because, you know, there's a sense in which if we watch what's happening with Israel and in Israel, it becomes the signs of the times and helps us to understand that the coming of the Lord, um, while it is in the future and we never really know, you know, that time might actually be at hand when he's going to be returning. Um, and so, yeah, um, basically that, um, that, is what, that is what we are seeing. So, so I want to talk a little bit more um, about this idea of dispensational theology. You know, where does it come from? It's not always been there. Um, it was actually popularized by a, um, a gentleman within the Plymouth Brethren by the name of J.N. Darby um, around about the 18, 1820s. Um, you know, through his study of the Bible and looking at the Bible and asking certain questions, um, he, he kind of, and I'm going to give you a brief summary of dispensational theology, he, he, he came to the conclusion that when one reads the Bible from beginning to end, it seems as if God in his dealings with the world and his work in the world and for the world seems to have been doing that within distinct periods that he calls dispensations. In fact, there were seven of them. And this has become very popularized, you know, and especially growing up within the church and in my youth, you know, because um, at one stage I was slightly younger than what I am now, um, but especially in the, in the 1970s and the early 1980s, you know, I was exposed to that gentleman, not just because his surname sounds very much like my name, but that's Hal Lindsay. So I started, because my dad had on, on his bookshelf, books by Lindsay, the late great planet Earth, Satan is alive and well on planet Earth, the great something. Um, but that was the late great planet Earth. Um, and then the one that captured my attention in my um, teen years was 1980's Countdown to Armageddon. You know, that one, I mean, sent me shivering in my socks. Because basically what Al Lindsay was doing within the scheme of dispensationalism, um, 
was beginning to take a look at the prophecies of Jesus and came to the conclusion that based upon the words of Jesus, particularly when he said to his disciples, this generation, you know, will see these things happening and then the end will come. He asked himself, now what was Jesus talking about? And now we know that this generation then didn't maybe mean the disciples. Because 40 years after them, which is normally seen as the biblical period for a generation, some will argue it's 30 years, some will argue it's 50 years. But generally, most people who seek to quantify the understanding of a generation within the Bible will say it was 40 years. Um, and so he said, well, maybe it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's the event of the founding of the modern state of Israel, which happened in 1948, so that if we add a biblical generation to that, which is 40 years, maybe Jesus is going to be returning in 1988. Now, it, it, it created mixed feelings for me, because on the one hand, um, you know, are we now living in the tribulation and is the Antichrist around? You know, because apparently, as one of my high school teachers who was a committed Christian told me, there is even a supercomputer in Luxembourg that is called the Beast. You know, so these things are around us. And then barcodes were being introduced, you know, at, at the shops, you know. And so I was wondering, are we going to be having barcodes, you know, on our foreheads, etc.? So, you know, so, so on the one hand, you know, it scared me. On the other hand, I saw hope in that because, you know, when I was introduced to this, it was actually in 1986, I remember very well, I was doing my matric exam in 1987. So I thought, well, look, maybe, you know, all the studying, um, I'm going to be saved from that because I'm going to be raptured, you know, and I won't have to do matric, you know. Yeah, so, so it was, it was Hal Lindsey, you know. And at the same time, this was also being popularized um, in the late 1970s. In fact, early 1970s, there was a movie called The Thief in the Night that kind of told the story, which if you look at the modern Left Behind series, um, it's actually based upon the idea of premillennial dispensationalism. Um, and I can remember, you know, watching that movie a number of times. Part of the reason for that is one of my uncles, um, he had a projector. And he would go and hire um, The Thief in the Night and other movies from, um, what was it, Gospel Crusade or something like that. There was a place, you know, that was before the days of videos and DVDs, you know. Okay, some of us might not even know what videos and DVDs is because they are now, they're now a thing of the past, it seems. <laughs> you know, but, but he would go around from youth group to youth group and he would take my dad and myself along, you know, and we would watch A Thief in the Night, you know. And, you know, it helped to facilitate and sometimes even scare a lot of people into the kingdom of God. So, so yeah, so, so if, you, if you are thinking about what the implications of that is, that, that is some of the popular ways and means in which it has been um, explained. You know, so, so this basically then, without going into the detailed explanation of it, is the way in which dispensational theology then takes a look at the entire Bible. You know, to say that God in his dealings with the world, in the way in which he, he acts, has done so in distinct periods, dispensations. In fact, there are seven of them. So starting right from um, Adam and before the flood to man or Adam or humanity after the flood, the time of Abraham, which is seen the dispensation of promise, the time of Moses that, um, and most of the Old Testament period um, that is seen as the um, dispensation of the law, um, and then 
the dispensation of Christ, which is the dispensation of the church. It's sometimes called the dispensation of grace, but they've changed that language because sometimes it gives the idea that there's no grace in the Old Testament. But there's plenty of grace in the Old Testament. In fact, there are even Hebrew words for grace in the Old Testament. So one cannot say that there's no grace in the Old Testament. So they used it more, the idea of the church, judgment, and, and the millennium. And that's basically what the schema of dispensational theology is all about. Yeah, and so that then just is a, is a summary of those positions. So now, maybe having looked at all of that, um, the question then does arise, you know. Are we at the end time? You know, what, what are we able to say? You know, no matter what schema you are in, you know, because how end time gets defined depends upon which schema you are in. Either the end time means a literal specific period at the end, or as those who follow a more amenialist, millennialist position would say, end time is a, is a reference to the entire period between the first and the second coming of Christ. So I think one could say, you know, knowing that we, um, we are between the first and the second coming of Christ, one could say, yes, we are at the end time, but how close we are actually depends on your interpretive and your millennial position. Um, and, and, that is, and that is where we can debate and that is where we can, we can share opinions. But then some people will say, ah, but, yeah, but hasn't, hasn't there been and is there not signs of the times? You know, there will be wars and rumors of wars and just as in the day of Noah. You know, we, 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 we remember those, those, those passages. You know, the bad things that will happen that becomes including earthquakes and you know, the wars and rumors of wars, and so particularly any wars in the Middle East, you know, might be the lead up to the great battle of Armageddon, as, as, as it is believed, you know. So, so should we not be able to work it out? Um, sorry, there's a dash that's left out over there. Um, the timing of all of, this, of, of, of these things, you know. Yeah, and, and while many of these signs could be compelling and very fascinating, you know, if we, if we try and consider them very closely, we have to remember the words of Jesus. And so we have to be very careful. You know, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. You know, so if Jesus, you know, if that was his approach, you know, it means that one has to be very cautious when it comes to how we, how we interpret the signs. And part of the reason for that is, if we take a look into history, all who have ever attempted to predict the end of the times have always failed. Anybody, and, it's, and this is not just Hal Lindsay, there have been others um, who have you know, committed themselves you know, to particular um, people as being the Antichrist or events as being you know, what is important signs of the times. When they have used that in order to project you know, when they believe Jesus is going to return, I mean, just, re- I don't know if you recall what happened in the year 1999. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, these things have always happened. Um, but to try and use that as, you know, a definite sign, um, you know, we need to be very cautious about that. And so the question is, is the current conflict in the Middle East and maybe not the best sign or a good sign of Christ's imminent, imminent return? Well, Let's quickly take a look at this idea of the conflict in the Middle East, you know, and how that might be 
be connected to or related to the ideas of the end times. I mean, let me say this is one of those areas that, you know, um, I personally feel a lot of pain um, with regard to what's currently happening. You know, and, and I'm, I don't just feel pain for the situation as it stands, the death, the destruction, the um, bad things that is happening from one side to the other. Not only does that pain me, but what pains me is how this is actually dividing um, our Christian witness and our Christian community. You know, because there are very strong perspectives and feelings that is being expressed by this. Um, so how then do we respond? Um, how do we interpret and should we interpret the current situation in the Middle East in any way um, as it refers to the end times? And as you have seen, you know, based upon the different ways in which we interpret the Bible and based upon the different millennial views, um, the significance of the current conflict in the Middle East and how it relates to the end times actually depends upon your translation of Scripture, both the prophetic text as well as the land text. You know, because there's kind of a mixture of those ideas. You know, so to whom does the land actually belong? You know, um, is is part of the question that that relates to that. And and what is currently happening is, and this is because it is one of the most influential views and the most popular views, dispensational theology. A lot of what you are hearing, especially in popular Christian media and on Christian television stations, um, tends to be a perspective based upon dispensational theology. And as you can see over here, in this kind of little bit more detailed approach, you know, the restoration of the Jews to Palestine and the conversion of the remnant of Israel within this tribulation period, you know, is a very, very important part of the scheme. Um, and so there, there are those who are then, and I say this respectfully, driven by the idea that if we are going to be supporting Israel, you know, whether we believe that there is a connection between the modern state of Israel and biblical Israel, um, from the perspective of dispensational theology, you know, we might be kind of aiding the circumstances for the return of the Lord by putting all of these things in place, you know, the rebuilding of the temple and all of that. So, so there's a lot that is being motivated with, within that scheme. I, I think, however, that that you know, we, we need to look carefully at the situation and we need to think carefully about particular verses of Scripture because one of those verses of Scripture that is used as a motivation is this passage in the book of Romans. Now remember I, I said earlier, Romans 9 to 11 is one of those passages that is often used in eschatology, particularly as it relates to the nation of Israel. Um, and so the whole Middle East conflict and its possible implications for end-time prophecies and the second coming of the Lord um, is therefore important to understand in terms of, you know, having um, the Jews in Israel and everything that goes with that. Um, in chapter 11, verse 25 to 27, there, there's a particular phrase, you know, that, that kind of is seen as almost a linchpin in, in, in this whole idea. So, so the Apostle Paul writes to the church of the Rome and says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Now, let me just say, the idea of mystery there is often what is also used. You know, what mystery is that? Is that the mystery of the end times or is it the mystery of the gospel? 
The Apostle Paul uses that term, you know, but um, based upon his other New Testament letters, the mystery is the message of the gospel that was once concealed but has now been revealed. Um, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. That becomes the kind of the linchpin, the catchphrase. We want Israel, all Israel to be saved because based upon this, deliverance then comes. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godless away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. You know, so um, there's kind of this motivation um, in many Christians that we need to be supporting Israel, we need to be supporting um, their defense because when the full number of the Gentiles has come in and we are dealing with all Israel being saved, that is when the end comes. Now, I want to just quickly say one needs to, in order to understand that passage, have an appreciation for the biblical message of salvation. Because I think if we do that, we will have better clarity as to what the Apostle Paul is actually meaning that all Israel will be saved. You see, when you take a look at the biblical message going right back into the beginning, one needs to understand that in the ancient world, the land that's today called Israel, Palestine, or as it was called Canaan, was an important piece of real estate, a very small piece of real estate, but a very crucial piece of real estate. So there you have the blackened piece. You know, I think many people, some of you have visited, I've, I've been there, um, you know, when they come there and they realize how small the place actually is, you're shocked. You know, I mean, it's about the size of the Kruger National Park, you know. It's not a very big piece of land, but it's a very contested piece of real estate. But in the ancient world, Canaan was an important land bridge between who would then become and who were the superpowers of the world. So in other words, there's a sense in which we need to appreciate that the reason why God called Abraham out of the land of the Chaldeans, you know, so, so think of that. The genetic origin of the modern-day Jews is actually Iraqi. And they, he makes his way all the way to Canaan, you know, and there's a few detours along the way, you know, thinking that the, that the land of promises may be Egypt, you know, because Egypt is a superpower, um, ends up in the land of Canaan. You know, so what God is doing in the grand scheme is trying to place Abraham right in the center stage of history, as it were, and things that were going to be happening. And so God makes a promise to Abraham, and one of the promises is the promise of land, you know, which becomes part of the issue. And in this small piece of real estate, one needs to understand it was always a contested piece of land. It wasn't just about the Canaanites who were there, but there were various other empires that were part of that land and that surrounded that land. And therefore, it was a land that came by many names. The land of Canaan or Israel, the land of Israel, the Holy Land, um, which leading up into the time of the Romans, it became known as Palestine or Palestine-Syria, which is actually the word for Philistine, you know, because what the Romans were doing in their way to kind of subjugate the Jews, he named them after the historical enemy, which is the Philistines. So the word Palestine actually means Philistine. Um, and it was the Emperor Hadrian that did that in the year A.D. 132. And then we have the modern state of Israel, or what today becomes the contested term, you know, is it Israel, is it, Pal is it Palestine? But once again, one needs to take a look at the biblical story. 
And one needs to understand that when the name of Israel is given, that God seems to be having a particular intention in mind. This particularly happens at the time when Jacob flees his brother's wrath and goes and works for his uncle in order to um, not only escape his brother, but then, you know, to get a wife. And he ends up with two. Um, And on his way back, he has this dramatic encounter. You know, where, you know, it's the first case of a WWE wrestling match taking place. And, you know, and Jacob wrestles with God. And, you know, he has a, a life-threatening, no, uh, injury that takes him throughout. You know, but then his name changes. And God says, you will no longer be Jacob, you will be Israel. And if you understand the meaning of the name Israel as being one who strives with God, you know, already there is a theological lesson that is being that we need to be sensitive to, and that develops out of that. So that when they do enter into the promised land, they have to find their, their place amongst these many nations, you know. And yes, there are some terrible texts in the Old Testament which talks about the extermination of people. Um, but, you know, it's basically the Canaanites that's in view, because when one reads through the Old Testament prophets, you know, things like Baal and Asherah worship, you know, that was the expertise of the Canaanites. And what God was trying to do was to install a sense of holiness, a standard for holiness that would set them apart particularly from the Canaanites. So it wasn't actually a message of destroy all the peoples. It was a message of deal with the Canaanites. But that kingdom becomes divided, in which even in the division of that kingdom, you begin to see that the understanding as to who or what is Israel actually changes. You know, in the, the, after David, you know, because of David's sin, um, and not directly in his time, following Solomon's time, there's a division in the land. The ten northern kingdoms become Israel. The two southern t- um, tribes becomes Judah. And what then happens is the northern kingdom of Israel falls to the Assyrians in, the, in 722 BC. And that results in what we call the so-called lost ten tribes of Israel. What then is left is actually Judah. And Judah becomes exiled under the Babylonians in the year 586 BC, under the Persian king Cyrus in the year 536, they get allowed, get repatriated, you're allowed to go back. But throughout that process, what you are seeing emerging is the idea that Israel, true Israel, is always the idea of a remnant. Not anybody who's just been born by a Jewish father is seen as Israel, but it's actually those who remain true to the faith. Um, because You know, you have ten tribes that have been dispersed that are no more. um, But you also have others that have been added in between. And when you take a look at the whole history of the Middle East, and I'm just going to run through these slides very quickly, there's always been conflicts in the Middle East. You know, so from time immemorial. And I'm sure that many of these conflicts resulted in people coming to, you know, um, the conclusion, are we now at the end, you know? Um, and, and who exactly is the Antichrist? You know, is it, is it the Philistines? You know, is it the king of Assyria? Is it the Babylonians? Is it the Persians? You know, um, is it the Greeks? Is it the Hasmoneans? Is it the Romans? You know, going into even the New Testament period. So, you know, the birth of the early church happens within that situation of conflict. So much so, and we know this, the disciples even asked Jesus, Lord, is the end now at hand? Are you at this time, even after his resurrection in the book of Acts, they asked Jesus, are you now going to restore 
um, Israel. And then Jesus makes it clear, you know, that his kingdom is not of this world. So, so Jesus is pointing beyond just this idea of the land or ethnic Israel as being Israel. You know, and, you know, a, a lot of um, what is happening there today comes from Theodor Herzl, um, the father of modern Zionism, you know, in response to the anti-Semitism that was taking place um, in Europe in particular amongst the Jews, there was a desire for the homeland. Um, and, you know, so there was this idea, we, we want to have our own land, our own homeland. And in fact, what many people don't know is they weren't necessarily considering what is modern-day Israel as the homeland. They were even looking at Uganda, by the way, you know, as a, as a place that they could call their home. So it wasn't about the real estate as much but actually about the identity as a, as a people. Now, let me say here, you know, um, because once again, this is one of those things that, that, that really pains me, you know, when it comes to who do we listen to, you know, and what are the perspectives that we need to take. And I often say to people, you know, if we are going to be saying that as Christians we must be supporting the modern state of Israel and the Jews, you know, for eschatological reasons or whatever, what are we going to be doing about the Christians, the Palestinians who are Christians? You know, so, so whoever you might be listening to in this regard, I want to make this appeal and I want to say to you, please also listen to our brothers and sisters in Christ who are Palestinians. Here are two of them I want to mention today. The one is the Reverend Dr. Munta Isaac. He's the academic dean of Bethlehem Bible College. Um, he is the pastor of the Christmas Lutheran Church in Bethlehem. He's a Christian and he's a Palestinian. The one below him um, I've met on a few occasions is the Reverend Dr. Johanna Katanasho. He is a Palestinian um, but lives in Israel. And he's the academic dean at the Nazareth Evangelical College. And he happens to be an ordained Baptist minister. You know, so I say to people, you know, if it is that, you, that, that we believe that we must be supporting Israel um, based upon who we are listening to, I say, let's listen to them as well. Let's listen to the Christian Palestinians and their perspective on what they are experiencing at the moment and their view of the end times based upon the fact that they are Palestinians and that they are Christians. So, so yeah, um, they, they are both on YouTube um, you can find them there, you can Google them, you can take them there. I, I just think quickly towards the end, want to say that one needs to think carefully about how we interpret Romans chapter 9 through to 11. Because I think if we understand the image that the Apostle Paul is using in Romans chapter 9 through to 11 to describe Israel in terms of this olive tree, this wild olive, we need, to be, we need to be sensitive to the subtleties of the language that he's using. You know, because he's, he's catching a picture. Now, basically, let's, you, we first of all need to appreciate there's a broader context in the book of Romans. Chapters 1 through to 4, what the Apostle Paul is doing, is basically affirming that there's only one gospel message. The idea of justification by faith. We are... We are always only justified, we only become Christians by accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And that is a message that is true for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. It's a message, remember that it says, has come via the Jews, but was ultimately for everyone, including us as the Gentiles. And so he says in chapters 5 through to 8, that we have become a new humanity. 
descendants of Adam. We are all descendants of Adam. You know, no matter what ethnicity um, that we claim or hold to. But it is through the second Adam, Jesus, that we are brought into a true humanity and a true identity. And what is that identity? That identity, he then argues in Romans chapter 9 through to 11, is in which we all become, through Jesus Christ, one who strives with God. We become Israel. So in chapter 9 through to 11, what he's doing is he uses the illustration of an olive tree to show who true Israel is. And he makes the argument that it is by not being an ethnic Israelite, a Jew in other words, that one becomes an Israel. But it become, you become an Israelite when you have faith in Jesus Christ. So there's a distinction there between ethnic Israel that he is actually making and between the Israel of faith. So how then do we conclude that? Let's take a look at the picture. You know, remember, they spent 40 years in the wilderness, and it was only a remnant that ended into the land, Joshua and Caleb. You know. But what happens then? He says Israel is this entire tree. All of us have our roots in Abraham, in which all those who are unbelieving, even from the time of Jacob, they are cut off. But true Israel becomes those who are ethnically Israelite and who accept Jesus, as well as the Gentiles who accept Jesus. So there has always been a remnant in Israel, not just ethnic Israelite is true Israel. He says that in chapter 9, verse 6. Unbelieving ethnic Israelites are not true, true Israelites of faith. So if they remain in the unbelief of Jesus, they are not part of true Israel. Gentiles, though, who become, become true Israelites through faith in Jesus and the picture that he uses is that we are being engrafted into the tree as to who is Israel. So who then is the all Israel that is talking about that will be saved? They are all those, both Jew and Gentiles, who accept Jesus Christ by faith. So what then are some concluding remarks? And then I'm going to open it up with some questions. Um, these, are, these are my own reflections and hopefully they might um, inspire you or they might raise some other questions. Firstly, I, I would like to say, um, when it comes to the many texts in the Bible, prophetic texts, um, especially texts that relates to the end times, I, I believe we need to be bold enough and open enough to look at them and to sometimes reevaluate our understanding of them. Because sometimes we might be right, but sometimes we might be wrong. Then we also, especially in terms of the conflict in the Middle East, I propose that we shouldn't be taking political sides, either Israeli or Palestinian, and especially not to confuse the idea of biblical Israel with the modern state of Israel. Um, I do believe as we say that we must pray for Jerusalem, but it's more than just praying for Jerusalem. We must be concerned for the salvation of all the non-Christian people of the Middle East. It is our duty to share the gospel with all of them, um, with Jews as well as with Palestinians, and there are Christians amongst both of them. We need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, but we also need to pray for the peace of Gaza and the West Bank. Part of the reason for that is we've got brothers and sisters there. I don't know if you know, that one of the three churches that's legal in, this, in Gaza is the Gaza Baptist Church. Last year, they had their pianist, 
an old lady assassinated by the Israelis. Their church, at the end of last year, was bombed by the Israelis. So we are brothers and sisters in Christ, in Gaza, who are Baptist. We need to seek to minister to the spiritual and social needs of all the people caught in the conflict as part of our Christian and moral duty, because both Palestinians and Jews need Jesus. And that's where I want to end.